We are in Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. And as I said already, this is going to be my last sermon from this pulpit, at least the last sermon from this pulpit as the associate pastor of, of this church, uh, unless something unforeseen happens. But last words, last words are important. And uh, many famous sermons have been last sermons. For example, John Bunyan's last sermon was on John chapter 1 on the new birth, and it's a remarkable sermon. Jonathan Edwards' last sermon was called uh, a farewell sermon, and he preached it to his congregation after they voted to remove him uh, as their pastor, and that was an amazing sermon as well. I don't think my last sermon at Grace Life is going to be Uh, famous or anything like that, but recognizing just the importance of last words, I gave a significant amount of thought over the last few weeks. What should I preach in my last words to Grace Life Church? I I asked myself, what should I leave with Grace Life as a final encouragement, a final exhortation to you guys? What should I draw their attention to? Because again, last words are important. Uh, The Puritans used to spend uh, or, or pay special attention to the last words of their dying friends and family. And often they have uh, recorded those last words spoken by pastors and theologians of the era because they, they just recognized how important it was, somebody's final words. Uh, Jonathan Edwards kind of carried this high regard for last words on, and in his uh, book called The Life and Times or The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, uh, Jonathan Edwards records the last words of David Brainerd. And this is quite a long quote, but I just want to read this to you. This is David Brainerd's last words and then Jonathan Edwards comments on the time and, and on that day. And so here's from David Brainerd's journal entry from his deathbed, Saturday, September 19th. I don't have the year for you. Uh, But here's what David Brainerd writes in his journal. Near night, while I I attempted to walk a little, my thoughts turned thus. How infinitely sweet it is to love God and be all for him. Upon which it was suggested to me, you are not an angel, not lively and active. To which my whole soul immediately replied, I as sincerely desire to love and glorify God as any angel in heaven. Upon which it was suggested again, but you are filthy, not fit for heaven. Hereupon instantly appeared the blessed robes of Christ's righteousness, which I could not but exalt and triumph in, and I viewed the infinite excellency of God, and my soul even broke with longings that God should be glorified. I thought of dignity in heaven, but instantly the thought returned, I do not go to heaven to get honor, but to give all possible glory and praise." Oh, how I longed that God should be glorified on earth also. Oh, I was made for eternity if God might be glorified. Bodily pains I cared not for, though I was then in extremity, I never felt easier. I felt willing to glorify God in that state of bodily distress as long as he pleased I should continue in it. The grave appeared really sweet and I longed to lodge my weary bones in it, but oh, that God might be glorified. This was the burden of all my cry. Oh, I knew that I should be active as an angel in heaven and that I should be stripped of my filthy garments so there was no objection. 
But oh, to love and praise God more, to please him forever. This my soul panted after, and even now pants for while I write. Oh, that God might be glorified in the whole earth. Lord, let thy kingdom come. I longed for a spirit of preaching to descend and rest on ministers, that they might address the consciences of men with closeness and power. I saw that God had the residue of the spirit, and my soul longed that it should be poured from on high. I could not but plead with God for my dear congregation that he would preserve it and not suffer his great name to lose its glory in that work, my soul still longing that God might be glorified. And now Jonathan Edwards comments as follows. He says, The extraordinary frame that he was in that evening could not be hid. His mouth spake from the abundance of his heart, expressing in very affecting manner much the same things as are written in the diary. And among very many other extraordinary expressions which he then uttered were such as these, quote, My heaven is to please God and glorify him, to give all to him and to be wholly devoted to his glory. That is the heaven I long for. That is my religion And that is my happiness and always was ever since I suppose I had any true religion. And all of those that are of that religion shall meet me in heaven. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or a low seat there, but to love God and please and glorify God is all. If I had a thousand souls, if they were worth anything, I would give them all to God, but I have nothing to give when all is done. It is impossible for any rational creature to be happy without acting all for God. God himself could not make him happy any other way. I long to be in heaven praising and glorifying God with the holy angels. All my desire is to glorify God. My heart goes out to the burying place. It seems to me a desirable place, but oh, to glorify God, that is it. That is above all. It is the great comfort to me to think that I have done a little for God in the world. Oh, it is but a very small matter, yet I have done a little, and I lament that I have not done more for him. There is nothing in the world worth living for but doing good and finishing God's work, doing the work that Christ did. I see nothing else in the world that can yield any satisfaction besides living to God, pleasing Him, and doing His whole will. My greatest joy and comfort has has been to do something for promoting the interests of religion and the souls of particular persons. And now in my illness, while I am full of pain and distress from day to day, all the comfort I have is in being able to do some little for God either by something that I say or by writing or some other way. Edwards goes on, he says, He intermingled with these and other like expressions many pathetical counsels to those who were about him, particularly to my children and servants. He applied himself to some of my younger children at this time, calling them to him, uh, speaking to them one by one, setting before them in a very plain manner the nature and essence of true piety, and its great importance and necessity, earnestly warning them not to rest in anything short of a true and thorough change of heart and a life devoted to God. He counseled them not to be slack in the business of religion, nor in the least to delay it, enforcing his counsels with this, that his words were the words of a dying man. Said he, I shall die here, and I will be buried, and you will see, me, you will see my grave And do you remember what I have said to you? 
I am going into eternity. And it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The endlessness of it makes it sweet. But oh, what shall I say to the eternity of the wicked? I cannot mention it nor think of it. The thought is too dreadful. When you see my grave, remember what I said to you while I was alive. Then think with yourself how the man who lies in that grave counseled and warned me to prepare for death. His body seemed to be marvelously strengthened through the inward vigor and refreshments of his mind, so that although before he was so weak that he could hardly utter a sentence, yet now he continued his most affecting and profitable discourse to us for more than an hour with scarce any intermission, and said of it when he had done, it was the last sermon that ever he should preach." David Brainerd's last sermon and dying words really are truly remarkable, and all of his desire was that God would be glorified. He, he sees nothing on earth that can satisfy except that God be glorified, and he recognizes, rightly so, he recognizes that God will be glorified on earth by promoting the interests of religion. There's nothing in the world worth living for, he says, but doing good and finishing God's work. And so in David Brainerd, we see a man who lived and died for the king. Now, I am no David Brainerd for sure, but but with my last words, I want to point you to the same ultimate reality, namely to glorify God by participating with him in the great work of redemption. God has purposed to glorify himself by saving hellbound sinners, turning them to Christ and, and, and turning them into Christ-exalting worshipers. And beloved, we, weak and needy, imperfect though we be, we are invited by God to participate with him in this great work. And there's truly nothing else in this world worth living for except to glorify God by serving him. And so with my last words, what I want to do is point you to the last words of Jesus Christ while he was on earth. The last words of Jesus Christ point us to the thing that should be the first priority in all of our lives. Our first priority should be to glorify God by obeying the last words of Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to look at the Great Commission as recorded in the book of Acts. I called this message, For the King, because Jesus is our King. And in this text, we see our responsibility, our purpose, our mission, what we are called to do for the King in the last words of the King. And so please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 1. And we'll begin here by just reading the text. Luke says, starting at verse 1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by this Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of, 
from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, he was, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. <clears throat> we're going to break this text into five sections, and we're going to call it Five Considerations as We Work for the King. Five Considerations as We Work for the King. And they're all going to go like this, and actually I'll just give you the outline now, and I'll give it to you again later, but they all go like this. Consider, number one, the certainty of our message in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, consider the commandment to wait in verses 4 and 5. Third, consider the chronology of the kingdom in verses 6 and 7. And then there's the commission to the world. And then we're going to look at the coming of the Lord. And if you didn't get those down, you'll, you'll want to get those later. But five considerations as we work for the king. Five things that I want you to consider. And so consider, number one, consider the certainty of our message. And we see this again in verses 1 to 3. The certainty of our message. Luke begins in verse 1 by mentioning the first account that he had composed. And we know this first account as the book of Luke. Luke is volume one of all that Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts is volume two. In Luke one, Luke told Theophilus that he wrote, and Luke one verse four says that having carefully investigated everything. Luke wrote his gospel having carefully investigated everything. And then verse four says, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In volume two, all that Jesus began to do and teach is continued as the Lord works through his apostles and disciples. And again, Luke says he investigated everything carefully from the beginning so that we may know the exact truth about the things that we have been taught. Plus, this record, this account is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is inspired scripture. And so Luke in volume two, is, this is an account by the Holy Spirit. This is God-breathed truth and not merely a human work. Now, there's a bit of overlap between the last few verses of Luke and the first few verses of Acts. Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus Christ, and our text ends with the ascension of Christ as well. And so there's a bit of overlap between the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And according to verse 2, the first account covered... Look at verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after which he had by the Holy Spirit giving, given orders to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. And so Jesus gave orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and we're going to look at those orders when we get to verse 8, where Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. And when we get there, we'll turn to Luke as well, and we'll look at it in Luke, and we'll look at some of the other Great Commission passages. But in in verse 3, we see another component of our certainty. Not only is this God-inspired scripture having been carefully investigated by Luke, but also look at verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering. Now most of you, if not all of you, know this, but we just need to consider this again. Jesus died. His suffering, as mentioned in the text, was an execution by the Roman government. And I want you to turn back to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to just follow the sufferings of our Lord for a minute. In Luke 22, in verse 52, Jesus was arrested by the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him. And we can kind of follow the headings in the New American Standard just to kind of follow the story here. Above verse 54 in my Bible, the title is Jesus' Arrest. He was brought to the high priest's house. Look at verse 63. Now, men, uh, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him And they blindfolded him and they were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blasphemy. And then Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin in the morning. And they said in Luke 22, 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus is brought before Pilate then in verses, uh, in chapter 23, 1 to 7. And he admits to Pilate in verse 3 that he is the king of the Jews. In verse 11 of Luke 23, and Herod with his officers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. In verse 13 and following, he is brought before Pilate again, and Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, but the crowd persuaded him to crucify Jesus. Look at verse 20. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. In verses 26 to 32, Simon carried Jesus' cross. And then in verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other 
on the left. They crucified Jesus, a, a Roman execution. And then in verse 46, look at Luke 46, Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And so Jesus breathed his last and died on that cross. And in verse 50 and following, Jesus was buried. But miracle of miracles, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And they could not find his body because he was alive. And Luke carefully investigated all of this. He interviewed the eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. He interviewed the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And he concluded that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this isn't some kind of legend written hundreds of years later. The Luke Acts was written while these eyewitnesses, at least many of these eyewitnesses, were still alive. And so Jesus rose from the dead and he presented himself alive to his disciples and to his apostles. And you can read all about it at the end of all four Gospels and in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere throughout the New Testament. There's testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now back in our text in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, To these, that is to his apostles and disciples, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Over a period of 40 days, Jesus presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. And if you go back, actually, just a, a couple of pages in your Bible to John chapter 20, I just want to show you one of these convincing proofs. <clears throat> Here's Jesus convincing the one who wouldn't be convinced. John chapter 20 and verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, "Peace be with you." And when he had finished and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were in, again inside when Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And we, brothers and sisters, are among those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have the testimony of the eyewitnesses written in the New Testament. Uh, and by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit works in our lives to convince us of the truth of Scripture. And all of that is just to remind us of the certainty of our message. 
The, the gospel truth that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised the third day, these truths are sure. And we can stake our lives, we can stake our eternal lives on this truth. And we can summarize the certainty of our message with just one word, confidence. Consider the confidence that we have as we work for the king. Consider the confidence that we have. Secondly, consider number two, consider the commandment to wait in verses four and five. Jesus had given orders to the apostles that he had chosen, and one of those orders was for them to wait. We'll start up again at verse three. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and they would be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. John had baptized with water, but the one who came after him was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus reiterates the promise of the Father in verse 5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now the Old Testament had promised in numerous places a, a day when God would pour out His Spirit on His people. Isaiah 32.9 is, is one place. In, in verse 9, Isaiah 32.9 uh, calls God's people to rise up. Verse 12 tells them to beat their breasts, a symbol of grief and anguish. And they were to do this according to verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Isaiah 44 and verse 3 says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel also talks about a day when Yahweh would give a new heart and a new spirit, and that's in chapter 11. And then in chapter 36, the new spirit is identified as the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse, uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, of course, the other place where the promise of the Father is mentioned is Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, and Peter quotes that uh, passage. He quotes Joel 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes, and he calls it the fulfillment of the promise. And so this pouring out of the Spirit or this baptism in the Spirit is called being clothed with power from on high. Just listen to Luke 24, 49. Jesus is talking here, parallel passage, and, and behold, Jesus says, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Or if you, we look at our text in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The coming of the Holy Spirit is power, 
power to witness for Christ, power to live according to God's word, power to live a holy life. And in those early days of the church, the coming of the Spirit also meant power to prophesy, power to heal the sick, power to do certain miracles to authenticate the word of God. And in those early days of the church as well, as we go through the book of Acts, there's a few distinct comings of the Holy Spirit as the word goes to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then beyond. There's distinct comings of the Holy Spirit. But that's just in the book of Acts. The the commandment to wait really then tells us a lot about the apostles and our own need as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. Just think about this. They are told to wait They're not to begin until the Spirit came. They they could not obey until the Spirit came. Jesus had taught them that that he would come to them in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then, and only then, would they bear much fruit. And so the commandment to wait shows that success in our work for the King is dependent on the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now this brings up a, a really important teaching that you need to be convinced of in your life. You know, I remember a week very early in my Christian life where I decided that I was going to do nothing. I was going to do nothing until I was endued with power from on high. I wasn't even going to go to a Bible study. And so I decided I was just going to sit there and pray until I was endued with power from on high. Now, I didn't know about this very important truth that I'm going to share with you, and that is that all believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus Christ. And after those initial comings of the Spirit in the book of Acts, every single believer, all believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And to see this, we could just go to two places. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. And I've got to be quick with this, but, but we, you do need to be convinced of this in your own life. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And so Paul says, you're not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. But if you don't have the Spirit, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit You don't belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, you're not saved. So if you're saved, implication, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, another place to really see this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, a really important text on this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says there, By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink one Spirit. And so Paul says, we were all baptized by the Spirit. We all, that is Paul and his associates and even the Corinthian church, uh, the Corinthian church with all of its failings was baptized by the Spirit. And if you belong to the body of Christ, that is, if you are saved, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is in you, and you are in Him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in you, and you are in them. And what this means for us is that there's no need to wait. 
Now, we still do need to be filled with the Spirit. That is, we need the Holy Spirit to control us, and, and, and we need to allow Him to mold us into Christ's likeness. We need the Spirit to direct our thoughts and words and deeds, and so we must be filled with the Spirit, but we're already baptized. We're already immersed in the Spirit. And what this means for us, beloved, is that we have all that we need in our work for the king. We have the help that we need as we seek to fulfill what the king has called us to. Jesus promised that as we make disciples of all nations, he would be with us even to the end of the age. We have the Holy Spirit and he has promised to work through his word and through us. And so the commandment to wait shows us the help that we have as we work for the king. The commandment to wait shows us the help that we have as we work for the king. Consider then number three, the chronology of the kingdom in verses six and seven. Consider the chronology of the kingdom, number three. According to verse three, while Jesus was presenting himself alive by many convincing proofs, he was also speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. His teaching also included opening their minds to understand the scriptures. Listen to to Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now all of this teaching and understanding seems to have left them expecting a literal fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a restored national Israel with Messiah reigning as king. And look what they ask then, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking, note, they, that is probably all of them, were asking. There's this ongoing asking to Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They want to know the chronology of the kingdom. When will it happen, Lord? When when will you restore the kingdom of Israel? When, When will you fulfill all that is written like you just told me in the end of the book of Luke? And it's really only natural for them to think this. It's only natural for them to ask this because many of those Old Testament passages that speak about the pouring out of the Spirit also speak about the salvation and restoration of national, national Israel. And so they think, well, if the Spirit of God is coming, the, the kingdom must be coming as well. Now, Jesus doesn't correct them on this. He doesn't say, oh, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe like he did with those who doubted the resurrection. Instead, he just redirects them. He says, the, the chronology of the kingdom is not for you to know, he says. The, the Father has fixed that. And incidentally then, if if anyone's focused on predicting the timing of the kingdom, you can just ask them if if they're better off than the apostles or if they think they're better than the apostles because Jesus says the timing is not for us to know. The kingdom will come when Jesus returns, but until then, our focus is to be elsewhere. Until then, we have a job to do for the king. Now, we don't know how much time we have, but we do know what our mission is. And in that sense, we're very much like Isaiah when Isaiah was sent out by Yahweh. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 when Yahweh says, who will go for us? 
Isaiah 6, 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, that is Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And Isaiah gave, or Yahweh gives Isaiah his message and Isaiah then asks, after Yahweh tells him what he's to preach, what he's to say, Isaiah asks, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and I will again be subject to burning like a tree binth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. In other words, Yahweh says to Isaiah, Isaiah, you're going to do this, you're going to preach this message until it's done. And we're to do the same. We're to, to be about our business for the king until he comes. And so consider the chronology of the kingdom. And when we consider it, what we see is we see the time that we have as we work for the king. We have an unspecified amount of time. And it really, until he returns or until he dies, that's the time that we have to live for the king and to serve the king. And then that time is, is done. And so the question then is, what are we to do in the time that we have? What are we to do in, in this time until the Lord returns? Well, consider number four, the commission to the world. Consider the commission to the world, verse 8, but we're going we're gonna to read at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Consider the commission to the world. And here's what the apostles, and then by extension, we as well, here is what we're to do with the time that we have. And here's what we're to do with the time that we have in the power of the Holy Spirit and with unshakable confidence. We're to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We're to testify to the world concerning who he is and what he has done. And the nature of our witness is, is given in more detail in other Great Commission passages. Each of the four Gospels ends with Jesus commissioning his apostles. And he leaves us then with clarity about our task until he returns. And I just want to look at a couple of these with you. Turn back now to Luke twenty-two forty-four. <clears throat> Luke 22, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem." You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, and you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. What things? Christ's suffering for our sins. We're witnesses of his resurrection from the dead. 
We are witnesses of the necessity of repentance and the possibility of forgiveness. And these things are what we call the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. These things are to be proclaimed in his name, that is, under his authority. We're to testify to the world, telling them who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to make us right with God. And Grace Life, you know this message. You know this message. You have heard this message Sunday after Sunday, that Jesus died, not because of his own sin, but because he had to pay the penalty for our sin. The just penalty for the crime of sin against an infinite God is an infinite measure of punishment in hell. And Jesus took this in our place on the cross. The other side of this is that the requirement to dwell in God's presence, in the presence of an infinitely good and holy God, is a perfect righteousness. A righteousness that none of us had or none of us could earn by ourselves. Jesus earned this righteousness in our place by living a perfect life on earth in our place. And only through Jesus Christ can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God. And the way to receive this, this, uh, this righteousness and this forgiveness, you know that as well. On the one hand, God must act. On the, on the one hand, one must be born again. Something must happen to you, something that God alone can do. And yet, on the other hand, we are responsible. We are commanded to repent and believe the gospel. Now, you might never understand how both of these truths work together, and, and that's okay. I don't, I don't fully understand how that works together either. But we know that Scripture reveals that both things are true, that, and, and we know that God must save by His grace, and that when He does, people will respond. People will come to Christ. People will trust in Him and turn away from their sins. And so we can call people to believe knowing that they will respond only by God's grace. We can show them that there's nothing that they can do to save themselves, that God must save them. And we can hold forth Jesus as the God-man who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He is meek and humble of heart. He will receive all who call on his name and he rejoices to save sinners. He will never cast one who comes to him away, and they will never perish. And we are witnesses of these things. And we have confidence that our message is true. And we have help from the Holy Spirit in this task. And we have time while we are yet alive to do this work. Now I want to take you then to another Great Commission passage. In Acts chapter 10, Peter summarizes the Great Commission in his sermon to Cornelius. And so go, go to Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a Gentile, and we'll pick it up then in verse 38. He's talking, Peter's talking to Cornelius. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to, salt, to preach to the people 
and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Verses 42 and 43 are really Peter's summary of the Great Commission. We are witnesses. Jesus ordered uh, us to preach and to solemnly testify that he is the judge and that forgiveness of sins is possible to everyone who believes in him. Another place we could look at the Great Commission is in Acts chapter 26. And since you're right there, you could turn there as well. This is our commission to the world. This is what Jesus commissions Paul to do. Paul here is testifying to Agrippa and he shares about the day that he was saved by Jesus Christ. And this is also the day that Paul was sent as a a missionary, as an apostle really to the Gentiles. And so in Acts 26, 16, a little bit into that text, it says, for this purpose, I have appeared to you. Jesus is talking here. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. In verse 17, Jesus says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And then in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Notice Paul is sent to open blind eyes, something that really God himself must do through Paul. And the purpose of this opening is that they might turn away from sin and Satan and turn to God. And again, we see this forgiveness of sins and so repentance and forgiveness. Now again, as we're considering the Great Commission, I've got to take you to Matthew chapter 28 as well. And so you could turn over there. In in Matthew, really, we see that this mission is broader than simply proclaiming the gospel. The, the mission of our, our commission, the great commission, is more than just seeing people saved. There, there's a, a teaching element, a, a maturing element that's involved as well. The, not only is the gospel necessary, but the implications of the gospel are necessary. And what I mean by that is that our goal isn't merely to see people forgiven of their sin, but really to see people saved from their sin. Our our mission is to bring people to Christ such that their relationship with Jesus Christ makes them like Christ. Our mission, as stated in Matthew 28, 18, is this. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to make disciples and teach them to obey Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see from this today is that we're all involved in this work. Each and every one of us is involved in this work because disciples are made in the church as we all serve one another with our spiritual gifts and abilities. That's what we learned in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16, that certain individuals in the body are gifted for the equipping of the saints, 
but the whole body is to do the work of ministry. Each individual member is to serve the Lord with their gifts, and this causes all of us to grow towards maturity in Jesus Christ. Each of us plays a unique work, a unique part in this work of making disciples. And all of us should be involved in evangelism, yes, and all of us should be involved in one another's lives and helping one another mature towards Christ's likeness. And so do you see how this works? Through evangelism, people are added to the church. And through teaching and discipleship and one another ministry, these people grow in maturity and Christ's likeness. And as we grow together, we become even more effective for the Lord. And eventually, a, a local church will be at a place where we can send individuals from our congregation to plant new churches, and, and the mission continues to the remotest part of the earth. And so it, it starts in the local center, Jerusalem, and it goes out as the church grows and expands in maturity and salvation. And each of us plays a part in this work, and through this mission to the world, God is glorified. And so the Great Commission is to see Christ build His church through us. And through the church that Christ is building, God is glorified. And so the commission to the world shows the task that we have as we work for the King. The commission to the world shows the task that we have as we work for the King. Now let me just try to drive this home a little bit for us. David Brainerd longed for God to be glorified. Just to quote him again, he said that God might be glorified. This was the burden of all my cry. And oh, that God might be glorified in the whole earth. Is this the burden of all your cry? In, in this world, it's, it's so easy for us to get distracted. We can lose sight of glorifying God so quickly. We can forget what we should be focused on. Our mission is to glorify God by participating with Him in the work of the Great Commission, in the work of redemption. And, and just to share personally a little bit, you know, I can tell you that I, I've had to preach these truths to myself over and over again this week. I, I, I wonder, you know, what we would find if, if the Lord just showed us, each and every one of us, in our own lives, how much we really live to please Him and how much we really live to please ourselves. How much of your time, talents, resources, and gifts are you putting towards the work of the Great Commission? I don't mean how much cold evangelism are you doing. Uh, you know, this is more than evangelism as I, as I tried to show. But I mean, how much are you sacrificing to build up the church, to support missions in the world, to equip the saints to serve one another? Ask yourself honestly, is there more that you could do or is there more that you should do? Or is, there, is there more that you would wish to do or that you had done when you were lying on your deathbed or when you're sitting in heaven? Now, of course, when we're in heaven, that will be gone. But on your deathbed, we say, oh, that I might have glorified God more fully on the earth. Is there more that you could do or should do? I, I realized just in the last few weeks as we've been thinking about moving to Lacrete, how much the, I love this world and the things of this world and how little I've been focused on the work of the Great Commission. And I think if each one of us examined ourselves, we could say, yes, I should be more focused on what the Lord is doing on, on this task that He has given us. The last words of Jesus Christ on earth was His command to His disciples to be witnesses. And last words 
are important. And so consider the commission to the world. This is our task as we work for the king. Now, finally, number five, consider number five, the coming of the Lord. Consider number five, the coming of the Lord, starting in verse nine. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothes stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus gave them this task, and then he ascended before their eyes. He was lifted up. He is now seated at the right hand of God. His physical presence is no longer with us on the earth, but he's still with us spiritually. He's not left us alone. We have the Holy Spirit. He's been taken up, but we're not just to stand around gazing up into the sky. This same Jesus who ascended into heaven will return and he will come back. And when he comes, his reward will be with him. He will reward us for all that we do for him. Revelation 22 verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now I agree with David Brainerd that heaven won't be about us or about our honor. Our desire then will be that God will be glorified and all other desires and mixed motives will be removed. Praise the Lord. But still, Scripture motivates us with rewards for faithfulness. And even the fact that Christ will come and return and check our work for him on that day, that should stimulate us to faithful service now. To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. What a reward that will be. I've been thinking about rewards a lot lately, and it occurred to me that one of the great privileges that we will have in this idea of reward is that we will one day be able to cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus, and so our rewards themselves will glorify God. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 9 says, When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Beloved, the coming of the Lord should motivate us in our work for the King. Because when he returns, our work is done. And so consider these five things and then consider your life. Do they correspond? And I don't say this to condemn. I just ask this to, to, to help you challenge and examine your own heart. Does your life show that you believe these things? Do you believe the certainty of the message that Christ rose from the dead and is alive today? Does that give you confidence in all you do for the king? Have you considered the commandment to wait that we can do nothing except by the Holy Spirit? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and that he lives within you and that he helps you in your work for the king? Are you convinced of the chronology of the kingdom that now is the time to work for the king? 
Have you considered our commission to the world that we are here to do work for the Lord, to reach the lost, and to build up the saints? Are you participating in this task for the king? Are you giving your all for the king? And do you believe that Jesus will come in just the same way that he went into heaven? He is coming quickly. His reward is with him. Soon we will be with the king But until then, let us work for the King that he might be glorified on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the task that you have given us. We pray that you would forgive us for forgetting, for losing our focus, and that you would help us to live more fully for you, that you might be glorified on the earth, and that we might be prepared to glorify you forever in heaven. Help us to expand your gospel. Help us to take this message to the world. May we see salvation and transformation that brings you great glory and honor in this place. And may it spread from here to all the world. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.